What is quite a treat to be here with you again behind this pulpit. I'm excited. Yeah. It's always a treat to be back down here to drive on the 5 South from Compass Tustin to Compass Aliso Viejo. But my experience now when I come back here um, is a little different than it used to be growing up here because I'm going to parts of the campus that I didn't used to go to. Uh, like the nursery. Now with a, with a one-year-old son, that was a place I probably couldn't have even told you where the nursery was back in the day. I'm, uh, you walk in, you see the little sticker system. Oh, I don't know how to use that sticker system. I had to learn that. And in the last year of being a parent, I've had to learn a lot of things. I learned a lot of things like a lot of life skills, like uh, changing a diaper, didn't know how to do that before I was in the hospital, and the nurse just said, here you go. This is your, your turn now. I didn't know how to change a diaper. I didn't know uh, which cry means what, you know, and the, the painful cry versus the tired cry versus the I just need attention and I'm just doing this just because kind of cry. I didn't know how to decipher those cries before I became a parent. I've learned a lot about selflessness, uh, a lot about patience as well, but I'm sure every first-time parent in the room has experienced this as well that you've learned being a parent is you learn quickly how much your parent did for you. That has been my experience in this last year, how much I look back and say, wow, my parents, they did a lot of stuff for me. They changed a lot of diapers. They did a lot of hard work, a lot of selflessness, a lot of patience uh, for me. And uh, I'm able to say thank you in a much different way, with a much different context, uh, maybe than I used to uh, before I was a parent. See, my parents, they did so much to help me, so much to prepare me growing up. And one of the things that they prepared me for was for that 16th birthday. That's a big birthday um, if, you're a, if you grow up in you know, America, if you will. So 16th birthday is when you get to go to the DMV and you go get to get your driver's license. And so I did, right when I turned 16, I went straight to the DMV and I got my driver's license. And my parents, they had prepared me for that day for a long time. Uh, they prepared me when I was a little kid with a little piggy bank to make sure that I save. And, and when I get money, make sure that I put it away and save so when then I'm 16 years old, I can buy a car. And so they helped me with that process. And uh, when it came time for 16th birthday, my dad helped me find a car and uh, he helped me through that whole process of uh, buying a car and negotiating the price and the insurance and checking to make sure the engine is okay and all those different things that go into buying a car. He helped me through that process. And so so we went out to go buy this car in Redlands. Out in Redlands, if you know, that's a, that's a little ways away. And for an Orange County kid that just knows Moulton and La Paz and Alicia, that's a long way from home. Um, and so we went out there. And uh, again, this is my 16th birthday. So we, I, this is my first time driving in a car by myself because I've never been legally allowed to do that before. And so uh, I get um, in the car and he says, all right, just follow me and uh, we will we'll make it home together. I said, sounds simple enough, sounds easy enough, let's do it. And so first stoplight that we hit, it's a yellow light and he runs right through it. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And so as a timid 16 year old, like I'm not gonna go through the yellow, I don't wanna get a ticket my first time driving a car by myself. And so I stopped and he went through the yellow, I stayed at the red, and then he called me and he said, hey, don't worry about it, don't sweat it. Um, I will be on the on-ramp to the freeway and I'll just be on the shoulder and all you gotta do is flash your high beams at me and then I'll peel out right in front of you and we'll, we'll get on our way home. And you're laughing already, but you maybe know where this story goes. I pull onto the on-ramp and his car is not there. It's nowhere to be found. And uh, at first I thought maybe I went on the wrong on-ramp, but I realized 
it wasn't the, on, the wrong on-ramp because then I got a call from him and said, hey, this doesn't look like you behind me. And I said, okay, what are you talking about? And he said, someone flashed their high beams at me and so I peeled out in front of them. But looking at the car in the rear view mirror, it doesn't look like your car. That's not you, is it? And I said, no, it's not me. And so I'm out a long ways from home and uh, he says, just make it home. You, you can make it home. Um, super simple. Simple, just take the 10 to the 215, to the 91, to the 55, to the 5, and you'll be home in no time. You could take the 10 to the 215, to the 91, to the 241, to the 5, but I feel like the 91, 55, 5 is probably better for you, um, just because we haven't figured out the toll road situation yet. And so I was like, okay, I, what? He said, see you at home. I was like, okay, great. And again, he was, tr- he was trying to be a good dad. That was not negligence. That was him trying to teach me, figure your own way home. And so... Um, I did. I did, but it took a very long time. I'm trying to remember that like almost phone number that he gave me of the amount of freeways that I have to take to get home. And uh, I, I remember he said the word 15. He, he said 215. I, I saw the, the sign for the 15. And I'm just looking at cities at this point in time. And I see the word San Diego on 15. And I said, okay, I... That sounds like the right direction. We're north, San Diego is south, and Orange County's right in the middle. So let's go to San Diego. And so I get on the, two, on the 15 south. And you're laughing because you know your freeways and you know that the 15 south does not take you to Orange County at all. It takes you down to Marietta and Temecula. And I was halfway down to Marietta and Temecula. I, I made it all the way down to Elsinore before I realized I was going the wrong direction. I was looking around, and I was like, man, I, I remember it being lights and billboards and stuff all over the place, and I feel like I don't see any lights. I feel like I'm driving in the middle of nowhere because I was. I was on the wrong freeway. So I pulled off the freeway, I pulled out my phone, and I realized, nope, don't go on the 15, go back north 15 to the 91, back to the 55 to the 5, that's how you get home. And so I did that in Elsinore, and then I did that like two other times because I didn't pull out my phone while I was driving. I just would stop, get off the freeway, park in a parking lot, pull out my phone to see if I was going the right direction. And it took me three hours to get home from Redlands to Laguna Hills. And if you know your freeways, no traffic, that should take you about 50 minutes to an hour, not three hours. So I missed dinner. Um, My mom was really happy to see me when I finally pulled in the driveway. But I did make it home, but I wasted a lot of time doing it. Wasted a lot of time getting off the freeway to stop and to pull out my phone when what I could have done all along was pull out my phone, type in my home address, and just follow the map. I've got directions right there, the power of directions sitting in my pocket, and I didn't pull it out and I didn't use it. That was a complete waste. It was a foolishness for me to have the power and to not use it for directions. See, as Christians, God has given us directions that is sitting right there with all the power in the world, sitting in our pockets, and all we got to do is pull it out. And in one sense, God has given us directions through the uh, divine, final, explicit revelation through his word. But God goes even farther than that to say that he will give us this thing called wisdom whenever we need it, whenever we want it. We can pull out our phone, if you will, at any time, type in, directions, if you will, and ask for help. When we ask for wisdom, it's not uh, divorced from final uh, revelation in in his word, but it's always complementary to it. It's always an affirmation to it. 
But God has told us we can ask him at any time for this thing called wisdom, and he will give us direction, divine direction, anytime we need it. I'd love for you guys to open up your Bibles right now to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8 will be our text this morning. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, he's going to tell us that we have directions that we can ask for at any time. Pastor John last week set this up so well with verses two to four talking about the trials and talking about the perspective and the steadfastness that we can have on the other side of trials, the command for us to rejoice when we're in trials. Quickly, James transitions to the the person that is in the trial. They have the comfort that they have the power in their pocket, if you will, to pull out their phone and to ask God for help whenever they need it in these trials of various kinds. And so if we want to seek to grow in this uh, this stronger faith to go along with this series, if we want stronger faith, we got to go to God for that wisdom. James chapter 1, let's look at verse 5 through 8 together this morning. James chapter 1, verse 5, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. To cultivate this type of stronger faith When we are in trials, it is cultivated by stretching us through pain and to teach us to grow in godliness. But also we can have this stronger faith by just asking for this divine wisdom. Remember James chapter one, verse one, if you look your eyes, you look up just a couple of verses, it says that James is writing to the church, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. James was the pastor there in Jerusalem, and his congregation has been spread out all over the ancient Near East because they were running for their lives from persecution, from the government that was trying to kill them for being Christians. You think about what comfort it must be to this, to this group of individuals that were scattered about running for their lives that there is opportunity for them to ask for divine wisdom, divine direction in their trials. What a comfort, what a joy, what a relief it must have been to them. Verse five, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, the implication that these people are going through these difficult, various trials. Since if you are in this type of trial, you lack wisdom. This is this picture of you need it. And whether you're in a trial right now or whether you're not in a trial right now, we need to understand our need, our, our desperate need for God's divine wisdom. So I'd love for you to write it down this way for point number one. If you're taking notes, admit your need for divine wisdom. Admit your need for divine wisdom. Again, this church, they were going through these trials, so it would have been very obvious to them that they need this supernatural discretion so that they can count it all joy in their trials of various kinds because logically that doesn't make sense. How can you do that? well, I'm going to need that divine wisdom. So he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, we toss around that word, oftentimes wisdom, oftentimes we might think it's you know, just synonymous with knowledge and knowing things and being intellectual, having 
just bits of facts that are stored up in our minds. But the picture of biblical wisdom is, is a lot more than just knowledge. Uh, it's, it, wisdom is, is knowing the right thing to do, but then also having the skill and the ability to carry it out. It's knowledge applied. It's knowing something, but it's also being able to possess the ability to do something with that knowledge. Specifically, the biblical wisdom here is for you is to have a knowledge of God's will and then also the ability to be able to do God's will in your life. So it's this picture of knowing and doing, which you know the book of James, you know that that shows up just a couple of verses later. Does it not? If you look back, uh, James chapter one, look at verse 22. This picture of knowing and doing or hearing and doing. James chapter one, verse 22 says, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But verse 25, the wise person, he says, the one that looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Paint this picture of someone that hears and knows, and this is someone that hears, knows, and does. This picture of wisdom, knowing and doing, having the insight and the ability to decipher right from wrong, decipher what God's will is, but then also now I know how to do it. I know how to put it into practice. See, wisdom, it's, it's action. It's not just head knowledge. It's, it's knowledge applied. It's action. You can see it. It's visible. James talks about wisdom all throughout the book of James. If you look over one more page to the right, James chapter three, he talks about wisdom again. James chapter three, he paints this picture of earthly wisdom and biblical wisdom that comes down from above. James chapter three, look at verse 13 with me. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Therefore, that destroys this idea that wisdom is just knowledge, just head knowledge. This person that's wise and understanding, they're supposed to show their good conduct by their works in the meekness or the humility of wisdom. Verse 14, it says, but if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. For this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For, every, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, sincere. And verse 18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You notice how visible wisdom is in real life? A wise person, they show it by the way that they live, not just by the stuff that they know, that they've learned. It's action. Verse 17, it describes this person gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. These are visible to the outside world. They do something different because of the wisdom, because of the knowledge that they have. Think back in your life of unwise things that you've done. Probably in some form or fashion, there's what verse 14 describes is there's probably some shred of bitter jealousy. Maybe you've done unwise things out of bitter jealousy. Maybe you've done unwise things out of selfish ambition in your hearts. It says, verse 15, that this wisdom... It does not 
uh, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and it goes as far as to say demonic. This is an ugly picture of selfish ambition and bitter jealousy and someone that does not live a life of wisdom. So if you're a Christian and you read James chapter 3, verse 13 through 18, this should be attractive to you. Specifically, verses 17 and 18. Wow, I want to be pure. I want to be peaceable. I want to be gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, impartial, sincere. I want to have a harvest of righteousness. This should be attractive to you, and you should want it. And that's good. Because for you to say uh, in an auditorium like this, I want to pursue wisdom, it first has to be attractive. It first, you have, first have to see your dire need for it. You first have to see how valuable it is. Last week, Pastor John was talking uh, about valuing the steadfastness of a refined faith, valuing when you're in the trial, what comes on the other side of the trial, this divine perspective of seeing God is working this out for good, God is, is growing me in godliness. He, he's, he's molding sanctification in my life. So therefore, I can rejoice. And so if we value the end product, then we can live in the day-to-day, in the trial, in the pain, with some perspective, with some joy. Same picture here of wisdom is we need to value it. And first when we value it, then we will pursue it the way that we ought to. Oftentimes, James is called the Proverbs of the New Testament. Proverbs in the New Testament because he talks about wisdom a lot. And if you know the book of Proverbs, you know that the book of Proverbs is all about wisdom. It'd be great for us to turn right now to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 2 specifically, to see this incredible value that we should place on wisdom. See, we're never going to pursue wisdom. We're never going to ask for wisdom. We're never going to seek after wisdom if we first don't Value it the way that we should. Proverbs chapter 2, starting in verse 1. If you've got an ESV Bible, your ESV editors put the title, The Value of Wisdom. Again, that's not inspired necessarily, or not necessarily, it is not inspired, period. But I think it's a helpful subtitle for this text here. Dream, or, uh, Proverbs chapter 2. Verse 1, he says, My son, if you receive my words and you treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of, right, or of justice and watching over the way of his saints. It'd be great for us this morning to copy and paste, to imitate this type of pursuit of wisdom in our own lives. Even really a convicting text right here to say, can I say that this is true about my life? That I seek for wisdom like it is silver, searching for it like hidden treasures. I'm inclining my ears, verse 2, to get more wisdom, inclining my heart to more understanding, calling out for insight, raising voice for understanding, 
can I say that this text right here is true for my life? It's good. It's good for us to place the proper value on wisdom that the Bible places on wisdom. If you've ever seen the show Pawn Stars, you see these people, they come in with these things that they want to sell to the, to the pawn shop, to Rick Harrison there who owns this pawn shop. If you've seen the show, oftentimes what happens is these people will come in with some rare gun or coin or artifact or you know, piece of jewelry or something like that, and sometimes they don't know what it's worth. They, they say, you know, my grandparents, they passed it on to me, and I think it's valuable. I don't know. What do you think? I'd like to sell it to you. I'd like to make some money here. And this guy, Rick, he knows a lot of things about a lot of things, but he doesn't know everything. And so when he doesn't know how much value that piece of, uh, that, that jewelry or gun or whatever it is, when he doesn't know the value, he calls up a friend that does know. He calls up his friend at the antique store or the gun store or the coin store. And these experts, what they do is they come in and they place a value on that item. Sometimes people are like, I don't know how much this is worth. They come in and say, that's a $10,000 gun. It was used in the Civil War. It's an original or that coin. There's, it's one of a kind. Like, you got to buy it. That's a museum piece. $10,000 is the valuation of that piece of jewelry or whatever. The seller is ecstatic. They're, they're excited about this evaluation. And Rick is even more ecstatic. Once the value is attached to that item, he says, I want that. That's worth $10,000. I'm going to pay you a, a few thousand dollars right now to buy it off you. I want that. There's a response, immediate response, after the appraisal, after the evaluation of that item. And when that item is attributed, when it's appraised as something valuable, he buys it. He has to buy it. He has to have it. He has to put it in his store. Same way right here when we read Proverbs chapter 2, it's this appraisal. It's this evaluation. This is how valuable it is. If you don't think of wisdom as that valuable, maybe you don't think about wisdom that often. Really, we got to sink our teeth into this proverb to understand how desperately we need and should desire this. Remember the story of Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 3. God goes to Solomon and says, you can have anything you want. What do you want? I'll give it to you. Solomon, he's the fresh face as the king of Israel, and he says, this is a scary job. I need insight and discretion and wisdom to lead the people of Israel. And God is very pleased with that, with that ask. He's so pleased with that that he gives him everything else that he could have asked for in that, uh, in that ask. He got the wisdom, and then he got everything else because God was so pleased with that, that ask for wisdom, because Solomon valued I need that. I desperately need that. I dependently need that. The book of Proverbs paints these two characters, the wise man and the foolish man, over and over again. The wise man and the foolish man. And I don't think anyone in this room reads the book of Proverbs and says, I would like to be the foolish man. Can I be foolish, please? I don't think anyone in this room wants to be foolish. But you see, if we don't pursue earnestly this this pursuit of wisdom, then what we're doing by being complacent, by doing nothing, is we're being like the foolish man. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 26. Listen to this. He says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. 
Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. It's the person that, that is complacent, that does nothing. Trusting in himself. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7. He says, Be not wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Being wise in your own eyes sounds like something of you just sitting back and doing nothing. How about this one? Proverbs 14, 16. He says, One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but the fool is reckless and careless. They're careless. They're complacent. They're willing to do nothing. See, it's a great reminder for us that if we are not pursuing wisdom, earnestly, we're sitting complacent and we are being wise in our own eyes, trusting our own minds, and we're being foolish. I don't think anyone in this room wants to be foolish. We wouldn't have signed up for that. So therefore, we need to pursue wisdom like it is a big deal, like it's valuable, like we need it. Our lives should be just encapsulated with this pursuit of wisdom. Everything about us, all the way down to your schedule, your calendar. Does your calendar and your, your schedule, your priorities, your energy and effort and time, does that reflect a pursuit of wisdom? It should. And that'll show up in, in, in what you make as a priority. If you are committed to, to, to reading your Bible and getting wisdom from God's word. If you're committed to praying, asking God for more wisdom. If you're committed to being a part of a church and sitting under wise teaching or to be in a small group to uh, have accountability with each other to grow in wisdom, to surround yourself with wise friends that will give you counsel to do the right thing, not with the wrong friends that will teach you and influence you and prompt you to do the wrong thing. Even your schedule, your calendar, your energy and effort will reflect this pursuit of wisdom. Prioritizing church, prioritizing wise friends, prioritizing counsel, prioritizing your own spiritual disciplines. That will show up in the life of a, of a wise person, someone that admits their need for this divine wisdom. James, he gives us such a simple solution here. If you look back at our text, James chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, which includes all of us, we all need to grow in wisdom, he says this, the solution, let him ask God. Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. See, to get wisdom, we know who the source of wisdom is. We know where to get it, and it's a simple solution here. It says, ask. Plead with God that he will give you wisdom. And it says he will give it to you. Write it down this way for point number two if you're taking notes. Point number two, plead for divine wisdom. Plead for divine wisdom. The idea of pleading is to communicate this, this urgency, this utter dependence and desperation that you have for it. Since all of us are in desperate need of this type of wisdom, then we need to go to God and ask for it. Your ESV Bibles probably translates this as let him ask God. It sounds like an invitation. It sounds like uh, something that you can choose whether to do or not to do. Really, this translation, it kind of blunts the teeth of this verb here because it's an imperative verb. It's a command verb. It's a finger in your chest, you must do this type of verb. And again, it's 
it's in third person, referring to this person that lacks this wisdom, so it's more difficult to, to, to translate into English, if you will. But there's this implication that if you lack wisdom, you're commanded to ask for it, which creates a heightened sense of urgency, a heightened sense of this must be an ongoing habitual pursuit. It's not a past tense verb. This is a present. This is an ongoing thing in your life. Take a note, Subpoint A. We want to plead for this divine wisdom habitually. We want to plead for this divine wisdom habitually. This is a present command for us that we need to ask for this. See, when God commands us to do something in his word, we don't take it as optional. We shouldn't, right? When you read uh, Ephesians chapter um, 4, verse 29, and it says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, you probably don't read that as an invitation, as an RSVP either way. I mean, I'd like to maybe be corrupting with my tongue sometimes, but other times it may be not so much. No, you read, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, and you say, I must do that. I must submit to that. I must obey God as hard as it is. It's not an invitation. Neither is this here. It's not an invitation for if you care to ask for wisdom, you have an RSVP to, to either way, yes or no. So we want to cultivate this lifestyle of pursuing and asking for wisdom. Think about First uh, Thess chapter five, verse seventeen. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse seventeen. It says, "Pray without ceasing." Colossians chapter four, verse two describes this picture of. It says, "Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving." There's this aspect of being disciplined and resolved to habitually go to God over and over again. God, may you give me this wisdom, please. To not ask for this wisdom, to not, for it to not be a, a habit of our lives, it's for us to say that we don't need it. We're, we're, we're self-sufficient in and of ourselves. We'd like to be wise in our own eyes. And as we saw from the book of Proverbs, that's the, the foolish way to go. That's the foolish path to go down. Remember, wisdom is not just the, uh, what should I do? God, God, help me make this decision for if I should move or if I should take this vacation or if I should change my job or I should do this or that. Remember, wisdom is to know and have insight to the will of God and then to have this skillful application to, to do it. Basically, you're asking God, help me know the right thing and help me do it. Help me obey, which is obviously something that God wants us to pray for. When you're in a trial, when you're facing a big decision, it might be more of a knee-jerk reaction to ask for this type of wisdom. This should be the lifestyle of any Christian. Constantly, habitually, every day, going to God, please give me, plead with you, God, for this type of wisdom. I need it. I value it. I gotta have it. We have accessibility at all times. Again, picture the opening illustration with the phone in my pocket. I could have pulled it out at any time. I could have that phone out habitually, put it on my dash, and follow what it says. Go where it tells me to go. In the same way, assessing our prayer lives and saturating it with this pleading for wisdom. It goes on, verse 5, to introduce who God is, why we're asking God. It says, this qualifier here of who God is, he says, who gives generously to all without reproach. It's just this reminder that we are going to God, and we know his character, we know who he is. He is generous, it says, and he will give to all without reproach. Going to God, asking for wisdom, because we're dependent on it. 
because of who God is and his character. So point B, you can write it down this way. Plead for divine wisdom dependently. Dependently. God is worthy of our faith and of our dependence upon him. And he'll dispense this wisdom singularly for our good. That word generously there is this aspect, um, it might not be the most helpful translation, it's this picture of of sincere single-mindedness. God gives this wisdom to us for our own good, not for other reasons, for us to have wisdom, not for ulterior motives. This unwavering resolve and intent that God will give us this wisdom, and it says, gives this wisdom to all without reproach. Reproach is this idea of God does not shame us or insult us when we go to him and ask for this type of wisdom. Oh, you're asking again for wisdom? Really? God doesn't do that. doesn't insult us, shame us, embarrass us for going to him and asking for this type of wisdom. You can picture if your, your kid comes to you, they need help on their homework, they just don't understand the math homework. Maybe you're a math teacher, you know how to do the math uh, the math homework that they have, and they go to you, a good parent will hear this request from their, from their child and say, yeah, let, let, me, let me help you. Let's figure this out together. Let's do this. Let's do this homework. Let's answer these questions the right way. I want to help you because I love you. I want you to get the problem right. I want you to pass the class. I want you to pass the test. I want you to grow in this knowledge, in this case of, of knowing how to do math. But then there's a different way to answer your kid when they come and ask you for help on their math homework. Oh, you need help again? Oh, man, I didn't really have to help your brother. He was so much smarter than you. You're really asking? This is just simple addition. You need help again on this? Are you kidding me? And what does that do? That shames, right? That's insulting. It's embarrassing. And what does that kid want to do after they ask mom or dad for help on their homework and that's the response they get? I'm not going to ask again, like if they're just going to make fun of me for this. That's this picture of receiving with, or asking for wisdom from God and not receiving reproach because of it. Remember, God has the spiritual assets to help you and to give you this type of wisdom. What a comfort that must be to this church. I mean, think about it. They're running for their lives. They didn't even know if they were going to survive till the next day. They weren't in their homes. They were on the run. What a comfort this must have been that God is generous. He unwaveringly will give this wisdom with the single intent of for my good, and I'm not going to be reproached. I'm not going to be insulted for needing wisdom as I'm sitting here in this trial trying to just figure out what to do next. God is a loving God, a comforting God, a God of generosity, a God that will give this wisdom to me when I ask. I don't need to be ashamed. Verse 5, at the end of it, it says, if this person asks, it says it will be given to him. They will experience this, this gift from God to them. They're the passive recipient. They're asking for it, of course, but they're the passive recipient of this divine wisdom to them. Look down the page, verse 17. It says that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is an active, loving, great gift giver. Remember this divine wisdom, it's, it's foreign to us. We're not being wise in our own eyes. This is God dispensing this to us. See, we just went to Revival a couple weeks ago, and uh, we took my wife's car to Revival 
and we left my car at home. And uh, so after, you know, long week at Revival, tired, you know, ready to go to bed when you get home. If you had a student go, they probably fell asleep right when they got home. I was exhausted. Being dad now, I got to unpack the car. I got to pack the other car. I've got to help the stuff get upstairs while the kid is screaming, like everything like that. I, I, I've got to do the hard work. And so, uh, man, okay, I unpack her car and I go over to my car, hit the key fob and nothing happens. It doesn't unlock. I'm like, oh man, what's happening? I hit it again, it doesn't go on. So then I have to take the key fob and I got to flip the key out of it and I got to go to the door and put the key in, right? Like, like we all used to. And then I had to open the car and put the key in the ignition and it didn't start. Oh, man, I left it for a week and the car didn't start. Great. I'm tired. I got to unpack. It's hot. I don't want to do this right now, but what did I have to do? I had to pull the other car over, pull it right next to my car, open the hoods, pull out the jumper cables, and connect my battery to her battery. And eventually, turn the key in the ignition, and the car started. Why? Because I plugged into a source with power. My battery was dead. Didn't have the 12 volts that it needed to turn over and start, but her battery did. And I was able to pull the power from hers into mine, and my car was able to start because of that power. You see, wisdom is the same way. We do not have the power. We do not have the wisdom in and of ourselves. We have to go to God and dependently ask him for it. It's foreign to us. It's alien to us. That's why we have to dependently go to him because we need it. If I have those jumper cables and I have her car sitting parked right next to mine and I don't do anything, I would be a fool. Why? Because the power source is right there. The jumper cables are right there. The working battery is right there. All I got to do is plug it in for the power, for the source, or the energy source. Treating wisdom like the same way. If we need it, we dependently go to God and ask for it. Not being wise in our own eyes, that's me trying to start the car over and over again when it's got a dead battery. It's not going to work. But when we ask for the foreign alien voltage from the other car, it starts. It will be given to him. God gives it to us. In verse 6, it gives us the one prerequisite to experiencing this wisdom being given to us. Verse 6, it says, but let him ask in faith. Let him ask in faith. Commanded to pray in faith that God will answer and it will be given to me if I ask in faith. That's the one prerequisite. You can write it down this way for subpoint C. I want to plead for divine wisdom expectantly, expectantly asking in faith and confidence that we will receive, not because we are good or because we are worthy, but because God is good and he will give us this power, give us this wisdom when we ask him. I mean, generously to all without reproach. This is exactly what Jesus taught his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, I'd love for you to turn there with me, Matthew chapter 7, teaching his disciples, in Matthew chapter 6, how to pray, in Matthew chapter 7, he expounds on that, and, and, and the nature of how we should be asking for these things that are in accordance with God's will. If we ask the right way, if we ask for the right things, God will promise to give it to us. Matthew chapter 7, look at verse 7 with me. 
Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, it says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And to the, uh, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, he will give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? See, we get to serve a God who is a loving Father and a generous Father, a good Father. It says, verse 11, how much more will our heavenly Father, our, our perfect Father, our great Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask for it? God promises to answer if we ask seek, and knock for something like wisdom. The implication of this text is you're asking for things that are in accordance with God's will, prayer requests that God wants to answer. It's not just praying for whatever you want for worldly comfort, but it's for things that you know God wants as well. James had to confront this as well. People in the, in the dispersed church were, were asking for things that they shouldn't have been. James chapter 4, verse 3, he says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. We need to filter our prayer requests through the things that God wants us to pray. And if God is commanding us right now to pray, in verse 5, for this type of wisdom, then we know this is something that if we ask for, if we seek, if we knock for, God will give it to us. Again, you think back to this context of trials, verses 2 through 4, various kinds, dispersed all throughout the ancient Near East. There is a temptation, a major temptation in trials when we're experiencing pain to pray that the pain will go away. There's a temptation to say, God, may you help this trial go away. I want to be done with it. There's a temptation to pray those kinds of things. But how interesting it is that coming off this conversation of trials, in the context of trials, for him to say, ask for the right thing. You know what the right thing is in a trial? is to ask for this divine perspective, this divine wisdom, this knowing the will of God, and then, God, help me be able to do it as well. A prayer request that God wants to answer. We have to be asking for these, for, for some, a prayer request like wisdom, confidently in faith, expectantly quoted it earlier, but Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, says, continue steadfastly in prayer. But then right after that, it says, being watchful in it. There's this picture of praying with this expectancy, praying with this alertness, praying with one eye open, waiting to see how God is going to respond. God, I'm going to pray for wisdom right now, but I'm going to keep one eye open to see how are you going to answer this? Because I know that this is according to your will. I know that you are going to answer it. I cannot wait to see how you're going to do that. See, we shouldn't be praying for wisdom flippantly. We shouldn't be praying for wisdom haphazardly. We need to be praying for wisdom in confidence with expectancy that God will answer. Being watchful in it. One of my old professors said that we need to be prayer optimists, not prayer pessimist. Being a prayer pessimist is someone that just, I'm just going to pray because I need to pray. I'm going to pray for wisdom because I heard that you're supposed to do that. Pray because I should pray. 
pray. Maybe, maybe God will answer. Maybe he won't answer. But we need to be prayer optimists. Not a youthful, uh, blind optimism, but an optimism in the character of God, an optimism in the promises of God that he will accomplish his purpose. And in this way, giving us wisdom so that we can live a life pleasing to him. I mean, what more God-centered prayer is that? God, help me live pleasing to you. Those are kinds of prayers that God wants to answer that we should be praying confidently and expectantly. Hebrews chapter four, verse 16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. A great reminder for us this morning that when we pray, we cannot do it just because we have to or just do it because it's the right thing to do for a Christian to do, but pray expectantly, pray confidently. Pray in faith. That's the prerequisite here to to, to receiving this type of wisdom. Verse six, he describes this person that doubts. Look back at uh, James chapter one, verse six. He says, let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. James warns us right now of the danger of you going to God in prayer but doubting him. Think, oh wow, to doubt God. That sounds like a big deal. That sounds like something I don't want to do. I don't think that I doubt God. Well, he's saying that when we go to him in prayer and we do not trust, we do not have faith that he will answer according to his will, answer this prayer of wisdom, and really what we're doing is we're shooting our prayer requests in the foot. Why do I not, not get wisdom when I pray for it? Well, because it says that we cannot do it with this doubting. It's like this man tossed around like by waves, tossed around uh, like waves, like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Therefore, we cannot doubt, which means that we need to fight, earnestly fight for this consistent trust, stable trust, stable faith in God. I'd love for you to write down this way for point number three. Earnestly maintain a consistent trust in God. Earnestly maintain a consistent trust in God in God. This picture of doubting is not doubting the existence of God. It's not, uh, are you an atheist or are you not an atheist? It's this doubting of of God's character, doubting of God's promises, something that is a big deal to him. One of the commentaries I read, I think, worded it so well. It says, someone who lives in inner conflict between trust and a distrust of God. This inner conflict of trust and distrust of God. Again, the context is trials. It is, you could make an argument that it's easy to trust God in trials because you feel dependent upon him, but also trials can be a place where it'd be hard to have faith in God. God, what are you, what are you doing? Why is this happening to me? If I was God, I wouldn't have done it like this. I would have done it like that. What, what, what's going on? Why would you let this happen? This bad thing happened to this good person. What's, what's going on? In a trial, there's such a great temptation for us to want to be God. And for us to waver from trust to distrust. Well, I know the things of God. I, you know, I'm around at church and you know, reading my Bible. Yeah, I trust God. But nah, my trial, my situation, my scenario, it's, it's really difficult. I don't know that I can trust God. We see the danger of this doubting faith, this oscillating faith back and forth. 
It's so helpful because, like I said earlier in verse 5, when it describes God being a generous God, there's this picture of an unwavering God. Like he gives unwaveringly, wisdom unwaveringly. And then you have this doubter who is this wavering person tossed like a wave of the sea, tossed to and fro. But you think about who God is. He's this unwavering God. That's the God that we put our trust in. Stable, steadfast. How does the psalmist uh, describe God? Rock, fortress, refuge. These pictures of permanence. Hebrews chapter six uses the word anchor. Hebrews chapter six, verse 19. It says, we have this as a sure and a steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. See, God is a stable God. We can have a stable faith when we put our faith in a stable God. A steadfast God, a rock, a fortress, a refuge, an anchor. There's such comfort in that. See, I'm not a, I'm not a fisherman. I don't like to fish. I've made it very clear to anyone that goes on fishing trips with me that I don't like it. But as a pastor, and you do fishing trips, I do go on it. I know that you guys do fishing trips. Our church, we do fishing trips as well, and I do it with as big of a smile on my face as I possibly can. I, I, I don't like the smell of fish. I don't like the taste of fish. The fish that I catch, maybe if I can catch, I'm not even going to use it. I'll just give it to whoever's sitting next to me. Oh, you can have it. I don't want it. But that's an expensive tuna. Come on, man. No, gross, disgusting. I don't want it. I don't want the smell, get the scales off me. And then also when you go on these fishing trips, you got to get on a boat for a really long time. You've been on one of these fishing trips before. You've been on one of these boats. You've been out on the ocean before. And you're on the boat, and there's this thing called seasickness, Right? You just, you're on this boat and you feel you're stuck because you literally are. You're stuck out there on this boat trying to pretend like you're having a good time fishing and you're, you're wobbling back and forth and you start to not feel good. My favorite part of the fishing trip every year is to, when I get back to the dock, that's my favorite part. My favorite part is frankly to step off that boat onto stable ground, on the concrete, on the cement of the dock because there's now stability there was instability before. I don't like that. Now there is stability on the dock. And have you ever been on one of these boats, fishing trips before? The first few minutes, you're on the stable ground and you start to still feel like you're out at sea. Right? You, maybe you hop in your bed at night and you still like, see your ceiling moving back and forth. It takes a couple minutes to get oriented again from the instability to the stability. There's that fight, there's that earnest, or earnestly maintaining that stable, steadfast faith in God because he is the rock, he is the fortress, he is the anchor, the steadfast anchor that goes behind the curtain. That is hard to do. We must fight to maintain that, especially in a trial that is even more difficult. If you ever read the Psalms, the Psalms, they kind of go through this, this paradigm of this right here, this instability to stability. Think of Psalm, like Psalm 13 is a great one. If, if this, is, this is hard to, to, to picture. Psalm 13 is a great one. Starts off with distrust, starts off with instability. Look at my circumstances. My, my world is crashing down on me. This doesn't make sense to, wait a minute, I remember, God, you are this. God, you are that. God, you promised this. God, you promised that. 
I'm going to grab a hold of those things, and I'm going to trust those. And I'm going to trust you. And you see that paradigm go from instability to stability. That's the paradigm that we have to follow, especially, especially when we have and we are, are faced those trials of various kinds. Not oscillating back and forth between faith and distrust, but saying, I'm going to earnestly maintain this consistent trust in God because who he says he is and because of what he promised to me. Verse 7, it describes the, the result. This person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord, for he's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Double-minded man. The word picture there is double-souled, two, two life. He's got two focuses, two masters, if you will. Trust in God, trust in self, trust in world, a distrust in God, a trust in God, and a distrust in God. Going back and forth and back and forth. And it says he's going to be unstable in all of his ways. Think back to the Old Testament. What did Israel do so many times, over and over again? They're commanded in the law to, to keep these festivals, to worship uh, Yahweh alone. And then when they start to hang out with the Canaanites, they don't drive them out of the land, and they say, why can't we have both? God will still worship you, Yahweh, but these Canaanite gods look pretty cool as well. Let's just cover all of our bases and worship them too. God is not cool with that. In fact, he's so not cool with that that commandment number one and commandment number two in Exodus chapter 20, you shall have no other God before me, and you shall fashion no idols. God is very serious that if you're going to worship him, you worship him sincerely and single-mindedly, him alone. Not going back and forth, distrust and trust. What does Jesus say when the lawyers and the Pharisees come to ask him what the greatest commandment in the law is? Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That sounds like singular devotion to God. Not a trust and a distrust. Jesus also says in Matthew chapter 6, 24, he says, you cannot serve two masters. The master of God and the master of self, you cannot serve those two things. A stable faith is this single devotion to God and to God alone. This is hard. This is difficult. This is gritty. You have to be earnest in this pursuit of consistently trusting God, especially when life is difficult. There's so many examples in scripture of men and women who did this so well. Hebrews chapter 11, all about that. In our last couple of minutes, I'd love for you to open up to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, to see the faith, the confident faith of Abraham. Romans chapter 4, to see this beautiful, consistent, single-minded trust and hope in God. Start in verse 17 with me. Romans chapter 4, verse 17, it says, As it is written, I have made you, Abraham, the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Verse 18, in hope, Abraham believed against hope. 
that he should be the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith, but he considered, or he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver. Concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This stable and steadfast faith, this steadfast hope that as I look at my circumstance, as I look at my own body as good as dead, and I look at the barrenness of my wife's womb, I am going to trust the promise of God no matter what. What an example for us to imitate, especially when we go through these trials of various kinds. Abraham's situation, it seemed impossible, but he steadfastly went fully convinced of who God is and what God has promised, and he chose to have this stable faith, this steadfast faith. If we're going to go to God and ask for this type of wisdom, We have to do it with this stable and steadfast faith, not doubting. Can we ask for wisdom when things are are hard or scary or difficult? We're going to him in trust, in confidence that he's going to give generously to all without reproach. If I ask him for this wisdom and I ask it in faith, he will give it to me for his namesake, for his glory and honor so that I can live a life pleasing and obedient to him, it's the kind of wisdom that we need to pursue each and every day of our lives. As we sit here in unstable times, unstable circumstances, we need to put our stable faith in our stable God. Let's go to God right now in prayer. God, We thank you for the truths that we find here in James chapter 1, that you are a good God, you are a generous God, you give to all without reproach when we fall on our knees and we go to you asking and pleading for wisdom. God, there are many in this room that are going through trials of various kinds, and it is difficult to count it all joy. I pray for those people, God, that they would fall on their knees in dependence and plead for this type of divine wisdom, this wisdom that comes down from above. God, that they would trust stable faith in a stable God. God, protect us from doubting you. God, there's a temptation to do that, especially when life is difficult. But God, may you, even this morning, with this reminder from James chapter 1, may you strengthen our faith. God, that we might trust you because of who you are and because of what you have promised. You will help us and guide us. God, you will give us this wisdom if we ask in faith. So we're asking now for this wisdom, God, that we would live a life that is pleasing to you. God, help us have insight into temptation, into right and wrong. God, so that we might live holy, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Prayerly sings in Jesus' name. Amen.